0: I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is New York Times reporter Patricia Cohen, whose new book, In Our Prime, The Invention of Middle Age, has just been published by Scribner. Patricia, thanks so much for coming into Slate's New York office to talk to me. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so let's start with a definition. Is there a universal agreement about when one becomes middle-aged?
1: No. No. And in fact, one of the things that I explain in the book that I I don't think of it so much as middle age as opposed to there being many middle ages, a lot of times chronologically, 40 has been kind of a traditional entry point, although that too has changed. I think a much more meaningful definition has to do with where you are in your life. Are your children grown? Have they, are they living on your own? Are your parents failing? Are they dead? Mm-hmm. Where are you in your professional career? Or psychologically, do you start to think about how much time you have left as right. opposed to how much time you had in the
0: past? It seems also that sometimes it's a feeling of, I'm not old yet. I know I'm not young, but I'm not old. And maybe exactly. Well, of... What, one of the things
1: I say about middle age is that I find that uh, when you're younger, nobody wants to enter
0: middle age. And when you're older, you never want to leave it. Exactly. Well, one of the things that you point out is that in the what, 17th and 18th centuries it was normal to round up in the census. Exactly. You know, the fashion was all about, you know, wearing gray powdered wigs and kind of things were tailored to make people look mature. And then right. when was it, 1860 or so, that suddenly people... Right, about the... I mean, of course, as we know, social
1: change doesn't happen overnight yeah. and it, there isn't one cause. But generally, in the second half of the 19th century, this consciousness of middle age... I mean, obviously, people live that long. They lived to their 40s and 50s uh, Uh, Before then, Mm -hmm. but people didn't think of middle age as a separate stage of human development with its own particular characteristics or features. And so you were young, you were an adult, and you were old. And, (laughs) And that was pretty much how people thought about it. But the other interesting thing is once middle age did emerge in people's consciousness, many times they thought of it as the prime of life. I mean, it was it was the norm, the standard uh, against which everything else was compared. And it was often seen as the height of one's wealth, power, and influence. So one of the things I was interested in is finding out why and how did we move from that point mm-hmm. to the point now where we tend to view middle age as the beginning of decline and, and nobody wants to
0: own up to the fact that they're middle age right what did you find along those lines well uh,
1: it, you know i tell uh of this story basically of of the invention of middle age and how it transpired and it's a it's a It's a fascinating story uh, with a lot of different characters. Um, It has to do, number one, uh, for women. Think of it. In 1800, the average woman had about eight children. So by the time the last one was out of the house, uh, she was dead. (laughs) By 1900, let's say it was more likely she'd have three children, maybe four. And so by the time she was 40, 45, she was done with child rearing. And suddenly, rather than being this undifferentiated period Mm -hmm. of endless childbearing and and nurturing, there was this period that opened up in her life that she didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Similarly, a switch from an agrarian Mm -hmm. economy um, where men worked from dawn till dusk uh, switched over to an industrial society and in that case men in 40 and 45 found that they were not as valued uh, on the factory line because mm-hmm. they weren't as quick or as adaptable mm-hmm. and so uh, for them actually middle age was a, a more negative time a more negative period of life and then of course you've got the whole advertising industry and movies and and all these products that are right. being sold right. which are constantly telling us you know Know, we need to look
0: better. We need to buy things right. to uh, to put off looking middle age. And I want to talk about those a little bit later. But first, I'm very interested in a lot of the discussions or even mentions of middle age in the in the very beginning of, of this consciousness of the, this period of life came in articles, magazine articles, where the point was to tell people, especially women, what was appropriate. Exactly. What was appropriate dress style? Now, speaking of someone who dresses pretty much as I did when I was 18, and maybe I've gone from kind of college freshman (laughs) to college senior in my changes, it seems to me that that has relaxed a little bit. There is less discussion of of appropriate clothing behavior, don't you think? I
1: I think yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, the range of acceptable styles and looks, I mean, in everything, and that's just a freer culture we have yes. in, in terms of mores and standards. Okay. Yes. But I mean, think about it. Every aspect of what we do now in magazines, and television shows are... About how you should dress. I mean, there's all of these extreme makeover shows. And I don't even mean necessarily the plastic surgery ones, but there's some where it's a kind of intervention on how you dress. And they right, right. right and they and they kind of ambush somebody to tell yeah. them what a terrible dresser they are. Yeah. And they need to change their wardrobe yeah. or what kind of hairstyle. I mean, in some ways, I think given the you know just the bombardment of images on television, magazines, internet. Of the way we look mm-hmm. for all ages. In, in a way, I think that we're so much more aware of how we measure up or actually don't measure
0: up. Right. And we have come to an age where those images are often very unrealistic. Either they've been photoshopped or people are undergoing interventions, either surgical or not quite surgical, to look better. I'm making air quotes, listeners. Right. Um, <laughs> and so it's harder to be content with the way we look naturally if such a thing is right. Even and of
1: course, you know, we, that's an old story with models and, mm-hmm. and particularly young girls in terms of being very thin and, mm-hmm. and the kind of epidemic of anorexia yeah. that that helped to spread. But one thing they found recently are middle-aged women now who are much more likely to, to themselves suffer from anorexia. And, and I, I find it this kind of double-edged sword on the one hand, I think images of middle-aged women in particular have improved recently I mean we don't have that picture of like the the defeated asexual nagging housefrau that right. that used to characterize the middle-aged woman and now we have you know they're beautiful they're sexy they're hopping into bed at every opportunity but in a way I feel that uh, I, I call it Stepford perfection like uh, the mm-hmm. stepford wives right, right, you know right. where where women in middle age are expected to be as beautiful size 4 mm-hmm. you know having orgasms every other moment and <laughs> and again it's this it's this kind
0: of perf- perfection that yeah. no one can live up to i mean the the real housewives franchise seems to be they've somehow managed to find a, an endless number of women who appear to Fit those categories, they also seem to be kind of crazy, but no wonder. Yes. Well, although I guess you have to assume that if you're on The Real Housewives <laughs> show, that,
1: that one of yeah. the prerequisites for that is you're kind of crazy. But yes. yes, that's that's a kind of perfect example of the extremes. Yeah.
0: Now, one of the things you talk about in the book is how once middle age was accepted, it still wasn't very much studied. But in 1989, the MacArthur Foundation put $10 million into an investigation of midlife. Can you tell me more about that project? Well, I I actually think of it as the
1: kind of Manhattan Project (laughs) of middle age. And uh, what's incredible is that despite all that's been has been written about middle age or how it's been portrayed in movies and books, that really no one or very few people had studied it in Mm -hmm. any depth. Certainly not of the kind of national surveys that have come to be the gold standard as well as over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so MacArthur uh, started out funding this, and it has subsequently been taken up by the National Institutes for Aging, Mm -hmm. which is now sponsoring it. And in fact, they just put another $21 million grant through to take it through the next decade, which will be the third and hopefully continue. And Mm -hmm. it is now probably one of the largest nationwide surveys uh, that's being done in the United States. And in fact, there's also some foreign parts of that as well. And it's just this amazing data set. So there's 300 or more studies from researchers not even connected to MIDAS per se, but who've been able to use their research. And they've just had this cornucopia of information and research about middle age. Uh, and so every- it's,
0: it's a number of surveys. They, they talk to people, they keep going back to them and just kind exactly. of following them over a long period of exactly. time. Exactly. It has a
1: few different purposes. One is to tell you about what middle age looks like now, but also they're also following younger people and older people so they can see over time mm-hmm. how it changes. Mm-hmm. Because most surveys that have been done up to this point about middle age, they generally compare one group or cohort, mm-hmm. as the, the term is, uh, who are middle-aged now, with another group who is young now. The question is, how do people change over time? So how, if you're 20 now, are you going to look when you're 55? And how is your thinking going to change? How are you going to feel about yourself? What about your health? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is also looking for things that you can do both physically and mentally to take precautions now to protect your your mental and physical
0: health later on. Right, and what are some of the things that they've learned about that? What can we all do to uh, make our middle years happier ones? Well, interestingly enough, uh, middle-aged
1: people often register as having the highest levels of contentment. Mm-hmm. I mean, stresses are definitely at a height mm-hmm. during middle age, mm-hmm. but they've also found that people feel more capable or more in control of their lives. They have the ability to handle them yeah. more. So even as you've got more aggravations, you, you feel better able to handle them. Right. Now, of course, some some of the things we, we know, which is physical exercise, of course, is the number one thing that you can do for both your brain and body. Yeah. And actually, they found really that it, it makes a tremendous difference in terms of cognitive ability. So maybe if getting fat doesn't get you to the gym, you know, getting dementia will later on. Uh, But also, uh, one of the most encouraging things that they found, and I actually just wrote about this in the New York Times uh, this past weekend, was that education seems to be this kind of weatherproofing against cognitive decline later on in life. And, you know, you have to realize a lot of these studies on the brain. still in their very earliest stages. Yeah. And, and so we still don't know a lot. But it seems that particularly for people who missed out on a college education early on, mm-hmm. that if they uh, okay. keep mentally active with going to lectures, with different kinds of brain games reading and and word Crosswords. games and such absolutely that that actually definitely helps protect against dementia later on and it, and it gives them some of the protection that
0: People who have advanced degrees have huh. I, I just want to uh, the i think one of the the beautiful analogy that you had in in, uh, in the book uh, when you were talking about the toll that physical labor has uh, on mm-hmm. uh, mid, midlife you said, um, like a coastal town punished by salt water and rain, impoverished people in midlife were battered by the cumulative effects of mediocre or curtailed education, joblessness, single parent families, ill health, and poor care. Clearly, that's expressing the ways very nicely that, you know, different kinds of lives, especially work that involves physical labor, has a different toll on the body, a much harder toll on the body than people like me sit around on our asses uh, (laughs) looking at the computer. What are the different experiences of midlife for people who have...
1: Well, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that because so much of uh, what is written about and so much of what I've been asked about in interviews and such, and I've talked about middle age being a time when people are feeling contented mm-hmm. and uh, feeling good about themselves and finding new opportunities, but oftentimes we neglect to point out that the prerequisites for that are being in a financially sound place and also being healthy and. Um, Um, obviously those two things make a huge difference. And so a lot of the general findings apply to middle class. Mm -hmm. And a number of those results actually predate the recent financial crisis. And Mm -hmm. in fact, researchers have made a point of going back now in this next round of surveys, which they're about to begin, to ask people about the effects of the recession and, and how that changes. One of the points that I make in the book is that middle age changes for every generation. So yeah. look at the baby boomers. Okay, they grew up in a time of affluence. They came when there was a lot of uh, political upheaval. They've seen the world change, uh, you know, both out of foreign and domestic ways. They've yeah. seen the rights revolution. It's also, um, most of them grew up before the immigration laws changed in 1965. Mm. So it's actually uh, the last generation that is so predominantly white. I think Mm. about 80% of the baby boomers are white. The women saw their mothers uh, who were really trapped by the feminine mystique and wanted to go out and plow new ground. Okay, so the generation that comes afterwards now is growing up with a very different set of circumstances. A period of of economic decline. Mm -hmm. It's a much smaller group. They're aware of women who are now saying, oh, you know, I waited too long in my career to get married instead of the follow your dream. It's now let's be more practical and get a job. So they're they're coming up with a very different set of historical circumstances. Right.
0: you Really hone in on some of the myths of aging, first of all, one thing I must know, is it true that the brain starts to decline pretty much the day you graduate from college?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, maybe a week after. <laughs> The thing is, and again, this, this goes to how little we know about the brain. I mean, the brain is just is so fascinating. And neuroscientists just have made these leaps in our knowledge in just the past 15 years or so, partially because of the kinds of technology we have to look inside the brain and monitor what's going on. But as a lot of brain researchers have pointed out, there are different kinds of brain skills. And there's one set of skills that are generally referred to as fluid intelligence skills. And those are the types that are often tested on SAT scores. And they're seen to be more genetic in Mm. makeup. And there are abstract reasoning skills and uh, things that involve memory and calculation, Mm. speed of calculation. Those skills do tend to start falling off in their 20s. That's that's what people have found so far. But there's another set of skills that are referred to as crystallized intelligence. And those skills are really much more dependent on circumstances, education, experience, learning. Uh, That's why we tend to think of wisdom as something that comes with age. Because of all of this, one of the most Interesting ways the brain works is using templates, uh-huh. you know. So in other words, there are these models that we have filed away. Mm-hmm. And when a new circumstance comes up, we kind of flip through all of these files really quickly, looking for the one that's, that's yeah. most appropriate. Those abilities improve uh-huh. with age. Uh-huh. And so in many ways, they compensate for the fall off. And in fact, in certain kinds of skills, for instance, financial investment happened to be mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. where they found midlife was actually actually the time when those skills were at their height, when the combination of crystallized and fluid intelligence gave you the best results.
0: Well, and it strikes me that in these, this particular moment that we're living in when, you know, we have Google everywhere, that, you know, those skills that are more prevalent in 20 year olds of, of being able to calculate and to be able to kind of recall facts are less valuable because we can just go to our iPhones and, or our computers and access yeah. that information anyway.
1: Yeah, well, that's a, that's an interesting thought, and in fact, some studies—and again, these are all preliminary—but um, some researchers do feel that they have seen changes in the way the brain functions for people who use computer technology mm-hmm. more. Uh, that actually, the way we think that you know, different kinds of neural pathways are, are being, uh, you know, imprinted on yeah, the yeah, brain. Yeah, yeah. And so it may be those skills may come to not be as important.
0: <laughs> I hope so. Now, another one of the myths you address is that of the midlife crisis, which, right. um, you know, judging from, I was going to say television and so on, but actually just from general conversation, it's the first thing, you know, somebody over a certain age does something slightly odd and the first words out of one's mouth are midlife, midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, you would think that everybody... Every guy over 40 was suddenly buying a red sports car.
1: Exactly. But. Exactly. That, that's another, that, that's, that's actually a myth that has been debunked so many times. <laughs> I mean, all the research has found the same thing, which is not to say nobody has a midlife crisis, but right. just that, uh, I think it's maybe about 10%, but that people go through crises at all points in their lives. Right. And, uh, in fact, if anything, probably the period in your late twenties or early thirties where you're embarking on a career and deciding whether to settle down with mm-hmm. a family yeah. or, uh, decide to have children or not, that those issues are much more momentous in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so um, it's just that the narrative of the midlife crisis is so strong. In fact, for some research, they found they went to talk to people who said they had a midlife crisis, and then they went back to look at the circumstances. And it turned out that Many times it didn't even happen when they were in middle age, you know, they were in their late 20s <laughs> right, or early right. 30s or they were in the late 60s. But it's just they they fit it into this narrative. Right. You know, I'm often asked, like you asked me before, uh, how to define middle age. Mm-hmm. And it, in some ways, I think maybe the best definition is to say it's a story that we tell about ourselves. Yeah. You know, we all try and make sense of our lives in some way and we, we construct a narrative and it, it could be a, a narrative of redemption, of triumph, of, of loss, of grief and, and resignation. And we, put these into a kind of narrative as we go along. And at one point, then the the story of middle age was a story of power and influence. And over time, it changed to become a a story of decline. And now I
0: think it's in flux Mm -hmm. again. Well, I want to pick up on that again. But first, let me just take a moment to give away some books. (laughs) You're listening to The Afterword, a Slate podcast about nonfiction books and their author. Scribner has given us four copies of Patricia Cohen's new book, In Our Prime, and Patty has been kind enough to sign them. If you would like one, send an email to slateafterword at com by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on February 3rd and we'll choose four winners at random. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. <laughs> The final section of your book is called The Midlife Industrial Complex. And you talk about the various kind of capitalist enterprises dedicated to fighting the effects of age. You know, so we've got Botox, plastic surgery, hair dye. You sort of point out, though, that there is a positive aspect to this complex because apart from the value to the economy of all that spending, which Mm -hmm. we need these days, it does feel good to take action rather than kind of passively allowing change to happen to you. Is that real? If I had to say what were two of the most
1: important uh, forces or movements of the 20th century, um, I would say the self-help movement. Mm. And I would also say mass consumerism, which is something that really only started occurring in the 1920s once uh, industrial production, one had the ability to manufacture goods in such large numbers and a distribution network where you could... uh, be able to transport goods from one end of the country to the other, yeah. and then advertise them, uh, right. so that we had all these national products in yes. a way that we didn't before. And the the ma- the marriage of those two forces is is what I kind of you know jokingly call the midlife industrial complex to, to crib a f- Phrase from Eisenhower, and and I I refer to it in a complex in in two ways. One, it's a complex in terms of being this sprawling trillion-dollar economic enterprise, but also a complex in the psychological sense of like an insecurity complex because all of these ads and products make you feel insecure by pointing out all of these you know maladies or ways flaws exactly, and then they give you the products to solve those. problems. Yeah. Uh, self-help is is fantastic. It's helped people quit drugs mm-hmm. and uh, give up alcohol and uh, get over traumas and all sorts of things. But it's, it's one of those things where we have to balance the good and the bad, where you can benefit from that self-help, but without
0: falling prey to the way it can be exploited. Right. Now, one of the things that as a television obsessive. One of the things that is of great concern to me is that on television, and to a smaller extent at the movies, one segment of the population has so much more power than anyone else. And once you leave that population, that segment, you feel powerless. Although total viewership is important. The key demographic is 18 to 49. And occasionally, it's 18 to 34 is also considered. Why do advertisers prioritize those people? Are they right to do so?
1: Well, this has been a a long, ongoing discussion in the industry. And recently, uh, the networks, for instance, have pushed to move it up a little bit to like 25 to 55, I think, or 54. And it really is, uh, the 18 to 49 category is really uh, just a sign of taking, of failing to account for this enormous baby boom population mm. Mm, right. that is this, you know, really the strongest consumer block. So it does seem somewhat outdated. Uh, Now, it used to be that there were all of these beliefs about younger and older consumers, that once you were middle-aged, you didn't change your mind anymore, and you were stuck on the brands that you started out when you were 18, Mm -hmm. and uh, you didn't buy things so much as younger people. Well, all of that has been proved to be false. And if anything, uh, middle-aged people are bigger spenders, certainly Mm -hmm. the baby boomers are. So then the advertiser's came up with a different rationale. Oh, well, if that's not true, then the reason is younger viewers are so scarce. So they're hard to reach. Therefore, we have to pay more to get them. And so the idea being that, you know, baby boomers are a dime a dozen. <laughs> you can reach them very easily, but younger consumers don't watch television as much. They're harder to reach and therefore they uh-huh. pay more for them. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, obviously that's, that's a, a pull. Certainly a lot of products and producers, b- businesses have really changed their ads to appeal to an older demographic. Uh-huh. And you can uh-huh. see that in car ads, certainly. Uh-huh. There is that one where instead of the kids going off to college, the kids are home and the parents are going off on this trip. Right. And, you know, the kids are saying, keep in touch, mom. <laughs> uh, so there is a change. But, but certainly that, ha- that has been very effective until recently in terms of keeping shows about middle-aged people and starring middle-aged people off the air. Yeah. I, I do think that's changing now.
0: One final question. Has working on this book changed your attitude to middle age? Uh, Is there one thing that you've learned that either made you Feel better or different about this stage of life?
1: Well, I, I in, in some sense the most surprising thing I think is captured in the title, which is the invention of middle age. Yeah. The notion that this this thing that we think of as a a, a natural force of nature, like gravity, is really something. I, I call it a cultural fiction. It's just something that has changes from time to time. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. as you know, we think sixty five is the time to retire, or eighteen or twenty one is the time you can drink or or 35 is the age when you get to be president. I mean, all of those things can change, yes. and and that is with middle age. As for myself, I think it's uh, looking at the way that human development is, is studied now and this, this idea of it rather than stages of being this kind of whole uh, makes it easier to approach middle yeah, age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 just more of a portion of your life. Right. It's just, we're
0: all just constantly evolving. Evolving and changing and, and this exactly. is one part of it. Exactly. Well, cool. Well, um, Patricia, thanks once again for coming in and talking about your new book, In Our Prime, The Invention of Middle Age. It's available in bookstores now. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to SlateAfterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to the afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.